Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One central point of tension in the basic income discussion is around the labor space. Some who advocate for labor or who, who work with unions feel like basic income is essentially giving up on, on labor and on humans earning a living through, through, their, through their work and their, from their employers. So to, to delve into those issues, and I think is in a really productive discussion, Jim sat down with Ed Whitkins. He is the president of EW Strategies, former president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, a member of the U.S. Department of Transportation's Advisory Committee on Automation and Transportation, and a senior advisor to AFL-CIO and Unite Here. Here's Jim's conversation with Ed. Ed, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Happy to be here. Now, before we get into future of work and universal basic income, I'd like to talk a bit about organized labor more generally. I imagine all of our listeners are generally familiar with unions, but in my experience, people often know the what, but not necessarily the why. And so can you talk a bit about why unions are important and what impact they have on our economy and society? Happy to. It's uh, one of my favorite topics. First, I think a lot of people are sort of captured by the narrative that's been pushed by those who aren't particularly fond of unions. And as a result, they only get their information from one side of the discussion. So that's part of the challenge is trying to get more and more people to understand the value of unions. And if you look historically at what unions have done, I mean, back in the day, um, unions were you know, largely responsible for creating a middle class fought for limitations on hours, fought for minimum wage, fought for you know health care provided through employers, uh, and fought successfully to create a generation, uh, a couple of generations of people who received real pensions on the job that created real stability for people after they tried to retire with a little bit of dignity. And then you kind of fast forward to where we are today, um, you know, unions, unfortunately, have declined as a percentage of the workforce. It's down to um, a little under 7% of the private sector. And overall, it's about 12% of the overall economy. And w- w- what has that done? Well, a lot of people have a lot of theories about what that's meant, but the data is really what's the most important. The data really do show a couple of very profound things. Is that synonymous with the decline of unions and and collective bargaining, the right to bargain for wages and benefits, uh, has been the basically the largest and most expansive growth in wage inequality in the country in the history. So I think what unions give us is an opportunity to get back to a conversation in this country about gain sharing. You know, our economy used to be about gain sharing. When financial gains were made by employers, when productivity went up, the gains from those um, advancements were shared with workers. And oftentimes, the the best way to share it with workers was through collective bargaining. But when you have so few people in unions bargaining, then what happens is you create this huge gulf between the very top uh, of the economic ladder and everybody else. And that's really where we are today in 2018. I think one thing that I've found useful in, in thinking about the impact in unions over time is thinking about power dynamics in society. I think oftentimes when we talk about policy, it's easy to fall into more of a technocratic headspace of thinking, well, what impact do the economics have here? And let's figure out that. And then, okay, once we have this economic view, then then we can know where to go. And that that often misses that the fact that the way we make decisions isn't typically being done technocratically. It's being done 
by different interests who have different priorities, and that uh, unions and, and the role that unions has, have played in that space. Can, yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that front. Oh, there's no doubt you've you've got it. Uh, you got your um, got it nailed there, which is. Uh, we are in this period of time where a lot of this is truly about power dynamics and about leverage. And again, when you see such a massive decline in the ability of workers to come together and negotiate for better wages, uh, the power dynamics just, they become more and more skewed in one direction. And so what we've seen now is um, a fairly massive takeover, not only by large corporations and all their various political vehicles that they advance their agenda through, but what's really interesting is if you look at the playbook being used by some of the more wealthy investors and initiatives that are designed to beat down workers' wages and to uh, eliminate unions, like the Koch brothers, they're basically using the labor movement playbook. They're, they're door knocking, they're phone canvassing, they're, they're organizing on the ground. Um, and I remember um, a couple of uh, very well-known, prominent uh, right-wing activists back in the 90s uh, had this sort of famous quote, I forget who it was, um, it may come to me before we're finished, uh, where he was asked you know, how they put their game plan together. And he said, we didn't need to put a game plan together, we just used the AFL-CIOs. Huh. That's a quote. So it's pretty well known that, you know, when workers are organized, they create a, a power dynamic that is uh, more balanced, more fair. Um, it, they eliminate the unevenness in the economy. Uh, they get rid of these uh, oversized uh, expenditure campaigns that are independent, not generally disclosed, that are designed to tell, you know, door to door people that what they're really doing is trying to help our communities. And what they're really trying to do is help make it easier to pollute our communities. But they disguise it in these sort of phony nonprofit uh, type organizations. So you you've you've nailed it. I mean, we do have a serious power dynamics problem in this country, and one of the good ways to to shift it back to a more balanced uh, um, approach is to probably see a, a renaissance, if you will, in um, collective bargaining, so that more workers have the ability to bargain for better wages and benefits. And so that um, when we do see these massive uh, changes in the economy from technology and from other, you know, just very disruptive business models that are coming online, that you have unions there who can help sort those things out and make sure that a worker voice is included in the conversations. Uh, otherwise, they just get lost or even worse, ignored. Uh, and that's a problem because that just feeds the wage inequality problem that we really haven't figured out a way to tame. Yeah, and that brings me to my next point, which is this is something we've discussed many times on this podcast, is the changing nature of work and how advances in technology have altered and continue to alter what, quote unquote, having a job or really engaging in different sorts of paid work looks like in, in modern society. And that clearly has major implications for unions. Um, now, I know in the last year, the AFL-CIO which for folks who aren't familiar is the largest federation of unions in the country, launched a commission on the future of work and unions to explore this area and figure out how best to respond to these changes. And I know you've been involved in this effort. Can you share how are you viewing the future of work here and what paths you see at, at this point for, for unions going forward? 
Well, so I'm I'm proud to be involved in that initiative with a number of other people. Obviously, it's chaired by the president of the AFL-CIO, Richard Trumka, and the commissioners around the table are basically uh, union presidents from various sectors who bring, you know, the depth of their experience, in many cases, decades of experience to a very tough conversation. Um, it's a conversation that in many ways is about power, power dynamics, because one of the things that the future of work lends itself to is a discussion about why is the future of work getting away from so many people? And so we we believe, and you know, I, I I bring this perspective to the initiative that the reason the future of work is becoming more and more threatening, daunting, challenging, and and you know, makes some people's heads explode when they think about it, is because a lot of workers feel isolated. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, Mr. Bezos just became the second trillion dollar company in the world. Um, his personal wealth, I think, is up something like $67 million just in the last few months here. Um, and he obviously has this incredible business model where, you know, it, it almost feels like half the world shops on Amazon.com on some days. Uh, but what what isn't told enough about Amazon that it isn't just Amazon's fault, it's the country's fault for having these business models rise and become as powerful as they become uh, without understanding impacts on workers or, or making sure workers are included in the discussion is that you shouldn't be a trillion dollar company with the amount, amount of wealth being created by Amazon and have a, a, a percentage of your drivers that have to live in their cars. There's something fundamentally wrong with our country when the, the biggest, most powerful rising companies in the economy are just sharing so little of their wealth with their workers that you have people being forced to live uh, with public assistance uh, or in some cases with not only bad housing, but with no housing at all, where they're delivering goods to people's homes in the, in the day and they're sleeping in their cars at night. Uh, this is not about bashing Amazon because Amazon's hardly the only company contributing to this problem, but this is about uh, what the future of work needs to be. And what we have right now is a future of work that's being defined by a very robust pipeline of job creation. The problem is that most of the job creation is low-wage job creation. And I don't think you can sustain a very powerful economy that way. You need people to have a living wage or better, and you need people to be able to sort of support themselves, um, earn a decent living, raise a family, put their, hopefully give their kids some uh, education, and save for retirement one day so that they can live in dignity when they're in their 70s, 80s, and beyond. And I think that's not the world we're currently living, living in. And I think that's really what the future of work should be about. It. We should humanize it. Too many people spend way too much time talking about robots. While robots are really important, and I'm very engaged on the robotics debate and AI and all the other things that come with it, we have to humanize this debate because it's ultimately about people. Do you see as, let's say we can start figuring that out and moving towards, towards more of a policy and, and a framing in, in that space, do you feel like the labor model looks the same as it has in the past in that world? Or is that something that will also, there'll have to be new things figured out there as well? Well, look, nothing can stand still. Um, people's preferences change. You have to understand what a, an average working person, whether he or she's in their 20s or in their 50s and 60s, what they want. I think there has to be a discussion about what's important to, to the people. Uh, 
So the answer is maybe, depending on what kind of worker you're talking about, what he or she does, and what they're used to in terms of representation. But in the in the sort of more modern part of the economy, the you know the the people that that do a lot of gigging and um, you know that that aspect of the economy, you know that aspect of the economy may require um, a different um, dynamic about how you represent people. But ultimately, this is a really important point. So those of you who, you know, watch this podcast, if they hear nothing else, I hope they hear this. We're spending a lot of time right now in this country trying to find a a new shiny object that can help save the day for people working who are not making enough money and who have very little power in an economy that is leaving too many people behind. And while I'm all in favor of looking for new ideas, new modern uh, representation tools and or innovations and all those things, I think they're all very important. Uh, ultimately, the only um, real institution that has created a more even economy that's given workers at the table a chance to sort of gain their share of the bounty that they produce as workers has been through unions. Does it mean it's the union that, you know, that looks like the union of today? I don't know. That's the question we should probably ask. But what I do know is that you need to have real unions that have true independent power at the table to fight for the workers. Otherwise, I think a lot of these other ideas, while they're very well intended and some of them may actually help move the needle in a a good direction, not sure we're ever going to be able to undo the really bad power dynamics we have right now, as you said earlier in the show, um, without reviving really strong collective bargaining in this country. I just haven't found another shiny object that works better and that can produce the same outcomes that unions once produced. And speaking of new ideas, this is the Basic Income Podcast. And so let's let's talk about universal basic income a bit. Sure. Now, with a few notable exceptions, I feel like it's fair to say that most people working in labor have not had a particularly positive view of UBI in the modern conversation context. Can you talk a bit about where that perspective comes from? Sure. I mean, I can't. I don't want to uh, present myself as a spokesman for all the union uh, activists and leaders in the country. They have their own views, and and I guarantee you, not everyone's views are the same. Look, unions have always supported a variety of programs over the years that were what I call income assistance programs. You know, whether they be income assistance programs designed to help people weather the storm, if you will, from trade policy that is, you know, costs a lot of manufacturing jobs, uh, whether it's income assistance related to government approved transactions where workers are entitled under the law to certain um, income and other financial benefits um, because they are harmed by government policy. I mean, there are models out there of income assistance programs where unions not only have been in support of them, but have actually been champions of them. I think the UBI debate is different because for, for I'll just speak for myself, the UBI proposal, one, it lets too many people off the hook. So let me give you an example. Uh, you could easily find yourself sitting in a room with Silicon Valley billionaires who have baked fairly perverse employment models, a combination of employees and independent contractors who have baked models without unions uh, at the table that are very low wage, like the Amazon example I gave you earlier. Uh, Yet, when you ask them, what do you think of the universal basic income? They say, "Hmm, that's a great idea. Elon Musk, great example. Uh, He doesn't want to admit he's an automaker. He wants to be a tech company. 
Uh, so he's spending a fortune trying to defeat unionization efforts by his workers who apparently want to join the UAW. Yet, if you ask him in the same interview what he thinks about the unions on his property, he'll say something negative. But then when you say, how about UBI? He's in favor of essentially a government program to help offset people's, uh, you know, uh, wage uh, disparities and, and income problems. So I think there's some bad motive in parts of the UBI uh, advocacy community. Um, right wing think tanks love the UBI idea. Why? Because they want to get rid of all, all of our public assistance programs. So they sense you want it to be a trade off. We'll give you a guaranteed income of let's make it up $800 or whatever it is a month. But in return, we're going to get rid of things like food stamps. We're going to downsize our public health care system. And we're going to essentially say that in return for this check, you're going to be basically on your own. And the numbers just don't add up. Unless someone plans to give someone a three or four or five thousand dollar month UBI. I don't know. Anybody thinks that if you eliminate our social safety net or weaken it. And if you don't do enough to raise wages for those that are working, that simply dropping a UBI on our economy. Well, yeah, it'll put money in people's pockets and it will put more money in the consumer economy. And of course, we'll be put to work, but it's not going to solve our wage inequality problem. It's not going to solve our flat wage problem. It's not going to solve, you know, families inability to pay for housing. I just don't think that that kind of uh, support is going to get us there. So I think that I'm giving you my perspective. I'm sure you could get 100 others if you asked 100 people. But uh, I find it to be a, an ineffective tool, and it can often be a distraction because, remember, I'm a recovering vote counter. I used to spend, I spent over 20 years trying to pass good legislation in, in Washington, D.C., and the votes just aren't there for what would be the, the largest tax increase in the history of the country. So that's, in a nutshell, my, my views on it. I think people like you and, and others who really do have very, very powerful intentions here which is to change the power dynamic, which is to give people more support, which is to give more income assistance to those around the country that desperately need it. Uh, those are all incredibly important uh, values and objectives, but I just don't know that UBI gets us there. So yeah, I, I wanna talk a little bit more in, in that space because I think you brought up a certain set of advocates that are supporting UBI for reasons that are really fundamentally at odds for the changes that, that are you, you see as important in the economy. And right. there, are, there are some set of advocates, and, and I include myself in this space, who don't sure. see these as being oppositional, who think we need to figure out a way to, to rebuild worker power. And at the same time, if we were to also create a universal basic income, that provides another mechanism that we can actually be broadly sharing economic prosperity with folks um, and be catching people that have all too often in the past slipped through uh, the, the safety net that, that is built up of our current social programs. So I, I'm curious, if, if that approach to it, if, if there was, I, I would say, a clear way to support that and not the other part of UBI, is that something you, you could see labor being more supportive of? I, I think it's just, you know, I think you have to look at it this way. Um, no, nobody believes in the current era we're in, even if there is a bit of a pendulum swing that clearly is likely in the November um, 2018 elections, where I think we'll see some fairly bad actors uh, ousted out of office, fortunately. Um, 
I just don't think anybody believes we have a political dynamic in place to be able to approach the the type of uh, policy at the scale that you're referring to anytime soon. So I think for most unions who are in the business of trying to give more workers voice, we're trying to raise wages, we're trying to make the economy fair. Uh, I just don't think they would uh, really spend any time or energy behind a UBI effort because it is unlikely to go anywhere. You could try to engage in a more robust debate among like-minded you know, people who share the same values over what type of income assistance programs could we try. That's a different conversation than just purely UBI. For example, you could engage in an interesting debate about uh, let's talk about this. I think this really is a nice, um, you know, it integrates well with this discussion, which is you're in the middle now of a fairly substantial wave of new technology that's going to be a pretty massive disruptor in the economy, whether it's robots and AI or just new communications and sort of platform company technologies that we're seeing take hold all over the, the economy. You could foresee a discussion where you know, the government is being asked to be an enabler of a lot of these technology breakthroughs through research, through uh, legislation at the federal and state level, through regulations. Right now, the U.S. Department of Transportation is, uh, is on an ongoing uh, basis looking at how to create clarity and certainty around how you, for example, deploy driverless cars. So what's going to happen is you're going to have a very robust role for the government at both federal and state level to become essentially the enabler of major, major breakthroughs that are going to occur in the economy. And then you're going to have very wealthy investors and very wealthy companies like Google and others monetizing those government investments and government policies into massive profits. So I think the, the better conversation isn't UBI. It's how do we get back to gain sharing at that moment? You've now asked the taxpayer to lend you its institution of policy setting and making. You've now asked the taxpayer to fund massive government R&D, which is what we did with the internet. It's what we did with the cloud. It's what we're doing now with uh, automation and AVs. Why don't we share some of that bounty with the workers, those who are working and those who aren't working, and come up with some sort of program that gives these people support, transition support, income assistance, uh, extended health care, training and retraining, you know, whatever it needs, and make those that are monetizing these breakthroughs uh, have some skin in the game and put some of their resources on the table. Now, that's a more interesting conversation than one just simply saying, why don't we do a UBI? It's interesting you say that because I actually feel like more of the recent conversations within the basic income space have been more talking about this idea of, of shared prosperity and that when we see these certain sectors or certain individuals doing very well, how do we ensure that, that people are accessing it? So it sounds like there, there's alignment on that. It's just more a question of how does that actually look in execution? Well, and I think, you know, one, collective bargaining can be a very effective disruptor because you can put a union at the table like Unite Here, which is the big hospitality union just did in Las Vegas with MGM and Caesars, where they actually negotiated a breakthrough agreement that gives the union a very robust voice at the table and gives them a say in uh, how technology is going to be implemented in the industry. Um, 
So that's one disruptor. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that the Internet probably would not have been created had it not been for a massive investment by the taxpayer through DOD and other federal agencies. Um, and you could go down the line uh, of breakthroughs that government research has produced, uh, whether it's in the medical field, manufacturing, you name it. And so what what we need to get back to is a conversation about when we use the taxpayer dole to help propel these incredible innovations forward, who should benefit from them? That's where I think there's that shared prosperity frame, that gain sharing frame where everybody should gain from it. So Rich Trumka has been openly quoted, the AFL-CEO president, saying that technology is inherently good or bad. Technology should be a tool that propels people forward with new skills, with better jobs. Uh, technology can make jobs safer. I'll give you an example. Why, why doesn't the hospitality industry give house cleaners in hotels motorized carts? Uh, they could do that today. It's just a matter of spending money. You know how many um, ergonomic problems house cleaners have pushing and pulling those carts, lifting things? There's so many ways that technology can actually make jobs better. But we have to find a way to make sure that workers' voices are injected in the development process. And the only way I've seen to do that is to be at the table with employers through unions. Uh, other than that, I don't know another way to basically force an employer to bring workers into the process when they're actually considering uh, new technologies that they want to put into place in their workforce. So a lot to unpack there, but um, there really are a lot of things that we could be doing differently in this country. And we're in this era now where change is coming at the fastest pace we've probably ever seen. So we don't have decades to get around to this. We're going to have to get to this pretty fast. Well, Ed, those were all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, it's been a real privilege to join you. Um, I'm glad you're digging into these issues. It's uh, They are very much uh, right at the core of what the future work conversations need to be about. But uh, I guess I would repeat what I said earlier as a final parting shot, which is the future of work needs to be better humanized by those in the space. We've we've allowed the tech industry to sort of sanitize it and make it about innovation and and robots and machines and how we're going to make life better for everyone. But they haven't really humanized it. They haven't put a human face on that discussion. I think it's up to us to to do that because that's really ultimately what all this is about. That was Jim Pugh and Ed Whitkin on the Basic Income Podcast. What I found striking over and over again in that conversation is how much the two of you seem to have the same goals and, and through the policies that you're advocating for, but just seem to come to different conclusions based on the, uh, the space that you two come from and your, your, your thoughts on policy in general. I think that's right. I, this is an experience I've actually had talking with many folks on the progressive side of the political spectrum, where if you're coming from a more traditional perspective on, on how you accomplish progressive change, your assumption coming in may be that these very different ways of, of approaching policy, you don't know who the folks are who are pushing that, and so there's naturally going to be some resistance there, and, and you would favor the more traditional approaches. But I think when you can actually have more of a, a deep conversation, around not just the policies, but the motivations for the policies, I found that oftentimes we realize, oh, we're aiming for the same thing. And we may have different thoughts on, on what the right way to implement it is. But once we talk it through, sometimes things are actually a lot closer than, than 
either of us might realize going into the conversation. Yeah, and it was striking how when he, he was speaking to his mistrust of the basic income idea, he mentioned Elon Musk as someone who's you know having his fights with labor right now. And it just shows that, yeah, it really matters who the messenger is and who the, you know, the, the people who are identified with this policy are. Because, yeah, if this was an idea that's coming entirely out of Silicon Valley, I understand why people would be skeptical of it and you know, wonder what the motivations are and wonder if they care about organized labor because you know, at least a lot of people believe that Musk is hostile toward, toward labor. And I think that ties back into the looking at the political space through a power lens and thinking about, all right, well, how, how does change actually happen if it's through solidarity and, and a certain group of people working together and, and being able to advance shared interests. As soon as someone outside that space is the visible champion for something, of course that you, you would be skeptical as to whether what you're actually getting into here is, is something that's going to achieve your goals or, or if ultimately it's, it's going to be diverting away from, from what you see as, as the way of, of empowering working people. Yeah, and one word he used a lot that I just thought it was interesting that he thought it was contrary to the basic income idea was gain sharing and how, you know, when when the economy and when companies are more productive, more profitable, that the people who are responsible for that profit should share in the gains. And that's one of my principal motivations around basic income is that society is progressing. There's more and more wealth out there. Everyone should have at least enough to, to get by on and be who they want to be. And yeah, I just feel like getting on the same page as you know, a, a good amount of the labor space on that, that issue could be really crucial to basic income. Yeah, I honestly see that as one of the highest points of potential for, for finding, finding an implementation of the policy that does a align more folks on the left. We talked about social wealth funds recently in uh, an episode of the podcast. And I think that's, that's one example where it's, you're structuring the policy such that Naturally, the idea is, as the country does well, we all do well. And I think that if that is baked in, then there's a lot more opportunity to, to pull together folks who their value is concerns about people being left behind, concentration of, of power amongst very few order corporations. That's a model that, that actually lends itself to, to standing up to, to that dynamic of capitalism. Yeah, and one thing he said that I think applies really well to, to everything, to, to our shared goals here, you know, us in the labor space and a lot of people, um, is that, that we should make this about people, that it's not about the coming robots. It's, you know, maybe not even about you know, wealth inequality and, and graphs. And if this is about human lives, who's going to be affected by this? You had a good line about how this is about the future of workers, not the future of work, because if we can get everyone on the same page on the future of workers, I think we'll be able to, to move forward in a really productive way. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And please do tell your friends. We're always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time.